Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reesmandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And we're really thrilled to welcome back this week for a very quick repeat appearance, uh, Professor Andrew Bottomley from SUNY Anianta. Welcome, Andrew. Yeah, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. And one of the reasons why I wanted Andrew uh, to, to come back with us is because we're going to dig back into the history of internet radio, and we're really excited to welcome our special guest, Carl Malamud, who is early trailblazer, the trailblazer for audio on the internet. Currently, he is the president and founder of Public Resource. But uh, Carl, you uh, you did a lot of great work to, to first bring audio onto the internet, and we're really thrilled you could join us. Thank you for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Paul. Eric, I really appreciate this. So, you know, you're credited with creating what is largely considered the first internet radio talk show it was called geek of the week and 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 it goes you started that it was it in 1993 is that correct yeah we went on the air uh actually on april 1 of 1993 we almost didn't go on the air and wanted to say everybody hey you know it was a joke but um we decided to go ahead anyway (laughs) (laughs) and 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 i can say that i know i i can think back to 1993 myself because that was the year i first saw the World Wide Web, but not until the fall. I never saw the internet prior to April 1 of 1993, I think. And and so it's sort of an amazing thing to think that you were already doing audio. Can you take us back to this time? You know, what, wh- how did this idea germinate? One, that you thought you could put audio on the internet in the first place, because it's hard for us to think now that we're in such a multimedia environment, but people principally looked at it as a text medium or a data medium and, and, and not really suitable for, for audio or video. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my browser at that time was a text only right. affair. I like pictures. If they were on websites were represented by, uh, you know, code words that told me that the, the name of that particular picture, like that was the internet. So how did that idea germinate that you would, that you would put audio online? Well, I was, um, I, I had written a number of professional reference books about computer networks and, uh, was teaching seminars and, and, you know, writing for the trade press, but I was also participating in the internet engineering task force, which gets together three times a year, uh, hashes out the internet protocols. And, and in those days, you know, 1991, 1992, it was very active. They, they were putting together email protocols. Um, and there were some people doing video streaming and audio streaming, and they were actually uh, allowing remote participation in the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force meetings. Um, and so they would hook it up so that they, they would have meeting rooms and people would be in the meeting rooms, but someone else could be like in Australia and they could be listening and they could ask a question. And that was somewhat revolutionary. And because I was kind of a hands-on guy, I, I kind of helped you know, on setup when it came to the the computers for every IETF meeting and got to know some of the people like Van Jacobson and Steve Deering and others that had actually invented the protocols that were used to stream audio and video. And and those, by the way, are the same protocols that we're using today, um, which is pretty amazing because they, they actually got it right. Um, and as I was attending these meetings and watching people participate remotely, Um, I also had this feeling that I wanted to get my hands much dirtier because I'd been writing books and teaching seminars. But what what I wasn't doing was actually like, you know, doing stuff like 
on the net. And I wanted to do something and I thought about it and it was like, you know, what the hell? Why, why not just start a radio program? And, you know, the easy thing to do would be interview my peers in the ITF and hence the, the term geek of the week. And so I went and asked people like Vince Cerf and, um, you know, Stephen Wolf, who was the National Science Foundation guy running the NSF net, the, the backbone of the net at the time. And I said, well, what do you think? Do a little radio program. And they were like, go for it. Carl, did you have a background in radio? Um, I actually sort of did. Uh, I graduated from the Interlochen Arts Academy, and my senior year I was there. I had a minor in radio broadcasting, so I, I, I worked at the student radio station. But, you know, I, I was very much an amateur. Um, and when I decided to, like, start audio on the net, it was, it was hard because I really didn't know the technology of radio. Um, and even like audio on a computer, you had to go buy a sound card and install it in your computer and then download the device driver and get it up and running. It wasn't uh, just so built in back then, right? It wasn't, oh, it was no, not all no, microphone no, no. with every computer like we, we experience now. No, you had to configure it to do that. It was actually fairly like hard mm-hmm. uh, particularly on these fancy like sun workstations and things <laughs> like that you, you you had to i mean you really had to like download a device driver and in our case we were doing things like so i bought an early dat deck um dat and you uh, mean what uh, you're talking about is digital audio tape is what yeah, you're yeah, about. Digital yeah, audio tape was the latest great thing. It was it yeah. was the modern wave of the future. And so we decided to do that. And there was technology for recording audio like on some workstations, but it was only eight kilohertz. It was it was low resolution. And in order to record the 48 kilohertz that a DAT deck does, which is, you know, professional CD quality, quality yeah, resolution, yeah. you bet, uh, someone had to write us a device driver. That actually was able to handle. So, that, so someone that, had to code a custom yeah. computer program for all intents and purposes to to take this audio that you were recording on your digital audio tape. Yeah, it was non-trivial. Yeah. I mean, it was it was it, it wasn't that hard. I mean, it yeah, was yeah. it was mostly a hack. I mean, I, I'm credited with inventing radio, but but I think invention is the wrong word. Uh, it was a hack. It was like the internet is ready to do this. Um, and and my thought was that you know audio was really big. It was like 30 megabytes for a half hour of audio, and in those days that was a big deal. Um, and but my thought was you could do this, and you know you probably couldn't do it real time, although we were doing real time we, we were doing live streaming but for your average user and by average user i mean a systems administrator in australia or in a national research lab uh for them they had to download it and so the idea was we would put these au files these 30 megabyte half hour interviews up on an ftp server and people would download them and when the download was done you know it might take 12 hours um <laughs> you could listen you could listen to your radio program <laughs> and and you know it, your audience at the time, I mean, certainly the audience that you're, you're, you're speaking to explicitly are computer geeks, right? People who are deeply into the technology of the Internet in 1993. But the folks are generally speaking, I mean, they, they're not at home, right, on broadband connections where they largely in offices at universities or at government agencies on, you know, the places that actually had these sort of direct internet connections, you know, do you have a, I mean, and, and where were you producing from? Where did you, how did you connect to the internet? I was, um, I started in my home in Alexandria, Virginia, and I had a reasonable internet line, but you know, we're talking dial up, uh, but you know, my users, um, so in those days, the internet wasn't that big, 
But, you know, all the major universities had reasonably good Internet access. Um, all the big government labs had it. And I thought my audience was, you know, the geek of the week crowd. Um, but when when I started this, uh, we kind of got lucky in that the New York Times put us on their front page, you know, move over Ted Turner. Um, and it turned out our audience wasn't just that. So uh, what I did is I got a studio in the National Press Building. Um, I rented one. Um, I convinced WorldCom, which was doing the the fiber in the D.C. area. It was, a it was very one of the big telecoms time. at the time. Yeah. 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 And I went to them and said, hey, I started a radio station. Look, front page New York Times. What do you think? And um, I understand you're laying fiber and you're up the street a few blocks from me. And they said, well, you know, we can run the trucks down a few more blocks. Let's get the permits. And they ran it up 10 stories into the National Press Building. Um, and they wired my, my office at 10 megabits per second, which was like really fast for those days. Mm -hmm. And so I walked up two more floors to the National Press Building and I said, you know, to the National Press Club. And I said, hey, you know, I'd like to broadcast your your luncheon addresses and as part of that um i can give you free internet to the to for the club and i can even build you a website um and so we ran the fiber up two more stories and uh they had three broadcast booths um one of them had national public radio in them uh one of them was like for tv and the third was empty and i said well you know while i'm here do you mind if i have one of your broadcast booths and so we, we threw another dat deck up in, in that booth. Uh, we ran the audio on down to our studio. And so we very quickly started doing um, National Press Club luncheons. Uh, we went to Harper Audio. Um, and said, and hey, wait, you, Carl, Carl, you said doing. And I just want to emphasize for the audience that by doing, you mean uh, broadcasting these meetings live on the Internet over audio for the first time ever. For five months, we we uh, recorded everything, got it ready to go, and then put it on the FTP server. Yeah. And, and then by December, though, by December of 93, we were live streaming them. Wow. So so in this case, doing was the first time-shifted internet radio the program. The first podcast. Yeah, the first podcast. <laughs> although the word podcast uh, implies a few for things that we're not going to 12 or 13 into. years, yes. But, you know. Yeah, Dave Weiner doesn't like it when I use the word podcasting because podcasting technically is, is an MPEG-3 file with an RSS feed. Right. And we weren't doing that, but, you know, it's pretty much the same thing. So a uh, radio program, whatever that you want to call it, really doesn't matter to me. And like I said, it's not an invention. It was a hack. So, um, but, but it worked, and it was a general audience. So with Harper Collins, for example, we got rights to uh, do low-res resolution audio transmission on the internet of their cassette tapes. Um, so they had T.S. Eliot reading The Wasteland. They had Robert Frost reading his own words. They, they had uh, J.R. Tolkien reading his own words. Um, and so I cut this deal and they were like, ah, oh, what do we have to lose? Well, res, <laughs> we're, we're not going to lose any money. And they sent me a hundred cassette tapes. And so we bought a cassette tape you know, deck and recorded all that to disc and uh, I, I put a nice little intro on the beginning of each one and, and put those on the net. Uh, we joined the public radio satellite system. So I put a satellite dish on the roof of the National Press Building and I got syndication rights for like Tech Nation, for example. Mora um, uh, Gunn was, was just online then and was, was very interested in the net. And she said, sure, you have rights to rebroadcast my program. Um, so we had a pretty varied amount of like syndication as well as our original programming. Um, and that was very quick. It was within six months. We were doing a dozen different programs. Wow. Uh, 
that's quite a spool up. I, I have to ask, how did you come up with money to fund this? It wasn't free, was it? <laughs> oh, so it was fairly low budget. I didn't have a lot of staff. It was me and a, my, my friend Marty Lucas was the producer. Um, I had a full-time sysadmin um, working for me. Uh, so I got some money from Tim O'Reilly at O'Reilly Media. I went to Sun Microsystems and said, hey, how would you like to you know sponsor a radio program? Um, and just I to put, sort of set, set it up I, I, here, I, I, I want to I wanna lay some, you know, just uh, I'm going to stop you just for a second because Tim O'Reilly is a publisher of, of O'Reilly Books, which which are a series, has been one of the premier publishers really of technical books, especially for people who, who are programmers or do system administration. Right. Animals right. on the cover. With animals on the cover, so that's something which you know not a lot, not everyone in the audience is probably aware of, um, and 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 as well, you know, Sun Microsystems is a name that, that, that no longer people know because they're not really in business, but at the time we're making uh, these work very powerful workstation computers uh, that sort of help people bridge that gap from working on big mainframes in the seventies and eighties down to working on personal computers, right in in the in the nineties and two thousands. Um, yeah, and I I had installed a lot of Sun workstations. So I, I, I started my career at the Federal Reserve Board. I was at Indiana University, then I went to the Federal Reserve Board and, and helped kind of, you know, change the way they did computing. I did a lot of consulting. So I knew the folks at Sun. And, you know, my friend Eric Schmidt was actually the guy that was running the the division that did computer networking. And why would people know who Eric Schmidt is now? <laughs> uh, well, he's at a little company called Google, yeah. although um, he's, he seems to have successfully, like, you know, he got parole and I don't think he's, he's actively involved there. But <laughs> Um, Helped, but, yeah, but, it was yeah. initial leader and founder. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so Sun. Uh, the big thing I got out of Sun was they gave me all the hardware that I could swallow. So they they and and those were expensive workstations in those days. So they they gave me computers. Uh, IBM was a sponsor. Uh, you know, Tim O'Reilly at O'Reilly Media was. Uh, and then I put all the money I had into it. I I, I you know I. I took all my savings and I, I dumped it into this. Oh, wow. It just seemed like, like an opportunity and, and was worth doing. You know, um, you say it's an opportunity it was worth doing and you've got these folks, you know, like O'Reilly Media and Sun Microsystems willing to contribute to it. Um, you know, it sounds very much like a startup. My question is, you thought it was worth doing to put in your savings. What did you see a profit potential? <laughs> what, what, what did you see? Or did you see just simply it was too much of a good idea to, to let pass and the sust the ability to sustain it would would come right. and, uh, and again to let listeners know who just are might be joining us this idea that's too good to let pass is uh the idea of putting audio on the internet that's time shifted in 1993 or so 1994 so when i started this it wasn't a company it was a project right mm-hmm. it was it was it was something i was doing and i i was put money into it. Um, but it was me sole proprietorship and all that. Um, so we made front page of the New York times uh, above the fold. I, I actually knew the article was going to run. And so I went to the coffee shop that day and I got my New York times and, you know, I, I, I flipped it to, to the bottom below the fold <laughs> and said, well, no, no, the article isn't there. I guess we didn't make it today because it had been a couple of weeks. Um, and so I was reading the paper, reading the paper. And I finally said, okay, what the hell? We're not in here today. Um, and so I flipped the paper back over to the above the fold and there was the article. So, and then I got home and there must've been 500 phone calls. Um, it was nuts. And one of the calls was a guy named Nicholas Negroponte um, who ran the MIT media lab. And he goes, Carl, this is amazing. This is totally amazing. Send me your business plan. 
And I was like, Nick, uh, well, thank you so much. I don't know if we have a business plan. And so I thought about it and I called him back the next day and I said, you know, Nick, I thought about this. I decided to make this a, a nonprofit. Um, and he was disgusted with me. He, he thought this was like a real opportunity that I was letting go. Uh, Eric Schmidt was the same way. He was quoted in the New York Times saying he just didn't understand why I did that. I made it a nonprofit for a couple of reasons. I was very impressed by C-SPAN and National Public Radio and in that world. Um, it seemed to me that we were early. Um, and if we were going to be a business, we'd have to, you know, figure out how to monetize it in a business model. And it seemed to me that this medium was brand new and there was a lot of opportunity to move it in different directions. And as a nonprofit, you could do that more effectively. Hmm. As a nonprofit, it was much easier for me to go to national public radio and say, let me join, you know, your satellite system. It meant that when I went to the United States Congress and said, please give me congressional press credentials, um, I was able to get those. And it was actually the first and only new media credentials they, they gave. And then for the next 10 years, they didn't give any more. They were like, no, 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 no. You're not really real, real media if you're on the internet. But I had mine and that meant I had free access to the Capitol. We were able to put a tie line, which was a dedicated audio line into the basement of the Capitol. And so by January 94, we were doing live streaming of the floor of the House and the floor of the Senate. Um, including uh, with a guy named Deb Roy, who's now a, a senior professor at the Media Lab. He was an intern at the time. He did voice recognition. So he was able to couple wow. the congressional record to the audio. So you, we had a search engine, and, and you could say, I, I want to hear all members of Congress from Minnesota speaking about the budget. And then it would pull up, pull up the audio, and you could actually hear it. But do we have that now? Why, why, was, this, why was this easy to do in 1994? And we don't have it in 2020. Oh, I don't know. It, 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 it's right. doable now. Uh, we, we actually demoed it to several senators and, and, you know, offered to give our code to them, but, but that didn't happen. So ran it for, you know, a year or two. And, and you know, Deb ended up like being a, a you know, senior media lab professor. Uh, he was chief data scientist at Twitter. Uh, he's just, you know, a real, real rocket scientist when it comes to, to, to a, a whole bunch of things. But in those days, it was audio recognition was, was the thing he was doing. If we go back then to 1994, Carl Malamud, um, most people are not connected to the internet at home, right? Some people are. Uh, I, I was because I was a graduate student uh, at the University of Illinois at the time, and that was something that I got as one of, as as part of being there. Though you know, certainly connected with with better access on campus. But, you know, home access was just starting to come about for the average person. Um, there's no such thing as Wi-Fi, no such thing as, broad, as mobile broadband. You know, cell phones are just starting to exist. But Most people data. aren't on laptops. Most people They're are on desktops. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and here you are uh, streaming audio, uh, you know, both doing live streams and then, of course, archiving audio for people to get at later times. Um, I mean, how how big was it by, say, January of 1994 when you've got, you know, House and Senate floor action going out? Do you have any sense for like how big how big the audience was or or who was tuning in? Yeah, uh, Geek of the Week episodes were getting hundreds to thousands of, of people listening to them, which we thought was big. Um, so the, the internet was small, but, but it wasn't that small. It's smaller than today. And, you know, we, we kind of thought it was um, hubris to, to say, oh, gee, everybody on the planet's going to be connected. And we're not even there yet. 
right? Um, it's not everybody yet. Uh, but in those days, it was, you know, every college student pretty much in the major universities had access. And, you know, a lot of people in big corporations did. And so it was, um, you know, our audience was, you know, in the tens to, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands. Uh, we did some websites in 95 and I did the Internet World's Fair in 96. Um, and in 96, we had five million unique visitors uh visit the Internet World's Fair site. Um, and, you know, it was like 80 different countries um, were, were visiting. So it, it, it was significant, at least by our standards. Um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If I could jump in, Carl, just yeah. to ask you a little bit about the kind of the mission that really was, was driving you here. Because, I mean, as you, as you point out, I mean, you decided to do this as a nonprofit. Um, and a lot of these projects you're involved with, like, you know, congre- around that time, like the Congressional Memory Project, I mean, uh, and of course, your career now with, you know, publicresearch.org, um, I mean, you're very much, you're an advocate. I mean, that's, I think, the thing that really drives you more than some desire to, uh, you know, make a lot of money or whatever that, you know, we th- often think of when we think of, you know, uh, technology and particularly Internet technology. Um, but at this time, I mean, the choice to put radio on the Internet and your ability to convince all of these big um, firms like, you know, Sun to, to back you and, and O'Reilly to back you was really because, I mean, you were you were one someone who was really quite vocal about wanting to sort of demonstrate what the what the Internet could do and also not just what the Internet could do as a technology, but what it could do as a social and even a political tool. Right. Well, and it was it was more than just advocacy. It was doing it for real. And I think that's the reason people like Eric at Sun and others, because it wasn't just a demo. This wasn't a, a high, you know, welcome to the media lab. Let me show you the future of, you know, collaborative filtering thing. And although some of that technology actually really like, you know, went very, very far. Um, they were an amazing incubator for uh, but but I was trying to do projects that were real that could force change, uh, that could do so in a way that would be long lasting. And so putting the national press club online wasn't about, you know, getting rights to the press club and being their exclusive voice. It was teaching them to own and operate their own website, which they did. And in fact, I, I gave them press.org. I, I had press.org as one of my domain names and I, <laughs> I ended up just saying, here, uh, here's your domain name. Um, so, <laughs> uh, but, but the idea was that, that by, by, Doing it for real, you can bring millions of people into a new service and you can use that leverage as a way to get the large institutions, the governments, the corporations um, to change their ways. And so it's a way of, of doing long lasting social change and not in the sense of, hi, I'm at a think tank. Here's a here's a white paper, but in the sense of this is for real. It's time for you to act. And when you say change their ways, Carl, I'm assuming you mean like um, uh, opening up so that information is more accessible to more people instead of like certain certain elites that had access had always had access to like um, uh, I don't know like government meetings, for instance. Yeah, that's part. Uh, openness is certainly part of it, but but a lot of it, particularly when I work with government. Um, I try to be very clear with them that this is partly about openness, but, but this isn't sunlight is the best disinfection. We're doing this to hold your feet to the fire. It's more of this is a better way of doing things that will make you more effective. And, and one of the ways you do that is to be open. Uh, but a lot of this is about using the computers and the networks more effectively to carry out your mission. Uh, so the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, it was partly uh, about, you know, making sure anyone could read the annual 
annual report of IBM and, you know, make sure they weren't getting away with anything. But it was mostly about making our financial markets more efficient and transparent and more effective. And that's how I sold it to the chairman of the SEC. It was it wasn't the sunlight argument. It was that, you know, you're going to be able to do your job more effectively this way. And you know what? I'm getting a million users a day using these SEC reports and it doesn't cost that much money. So you can do this. Um, This is not a big adventuresome leap on your part. Like if I could grab a, a, a an example of our time, you can let me know if it's too far fetched. Like the idea that like health data during the pandemic, if it was more widely available, so that all sorts of people could download the data, uh, more scientists all across the world might be able to um, pick apart that information and find more solutions that would um, help us today? Well, so if journal articles, uh, which the majority are behind a paywall, were more broadly available, people could do text and data mining and come up with significant scientific results. So it's not just the government data, right, about reports that has to be more transparent. It's the data as a whole. In fact, that's one of the areas we're heavily involved in right now is the idea that text and data mining on scientific journal articles is something anybody ought to be able to do. And you don't need permission from the journal publishers to do that. That's actually a a somewhat controversial um, (laughs) uh, point of view. Yeah, it's amazing to use the word data mining and it gets my hackles up because it's a it's a bad word. The, you know, the trillionaires use data mining to control us as opposed to the notion that that data mining is just a technique that could help all of us understand the world. Um, If data mining was more was was uh, was easier to access for all people. Yeah. To bring this back around to radio, though, maybe uh, thank you, Andrew. Uh, to Carl, but I mean, there were quite a few projects that were involved in around the same time as uh, you know the internet, internet multicasting service and internet talk radio that were text projects too. Um, but with this, with Geek of the Week, with Internet Talk Radio with, as a channel, you know, you chose radio, and I wonder if you could say a little bit more about you know what the appeal was of radio or audio. Um, and, you know, if there's anything that you think of as radio as a medium um, that you really that really, I think, matches with some of these principles that you're describing here. Well, so I, I was attracted to to radio, I, a longtime national public radio listener. Uh, the reason I did audio is because video was just too damn hard to do. It was too big. It was hard to edit. I mean, even editing audio um was not easy. I, I, you know, I ended up buying a DigiDesign board and, and, you know, a bunch of Mackie boards and having to learn all those. And, you know, thank God Marty Lucas knew, knew a lot of this stuff already. Uh, but it was a real learning experience. Video was like significantly harder. And about 2004, I bought my first high def cameras and, started working with those and that was really hard um and it's still hard i'm i'm still learning video um uh, we're we're deep in in that right now as as part of my my work with public resource but in 93 it was forget about it we were doing video on the net we were doing live streaming um but it was live streaming 4 frames per second right which is like i i mean it's very much stop motion 
video and the the resolution was like you know 320 by 240 so it, it was you know on, on your current computer screen it, it's that you know that's kind of what an icon is um little bitty you know images very stop frame it, it just wasn't doable but the insight on audio was that you could do eight kilohertz audio which again is not very good by today's standards but it was good enough uh so eight kilohertz um is like am radio Right. Um, and that was kind of the insight was you could do AM radio on the Internet today. Um, so let, let, let's get started. Uh, but but video was just I, I just it, it would have been too hard. You know, at that time, then as well, you know, and this is something we talked with. We've talked with Andrew about a couple of times, you know, 1993, 1994, when you're putting up Geek of the Week, you're, you're doing these live stream of House and Senate. Uh, proceedings. You've got the National Press Club luncheons being broadcast on the internet. Um, there's not a lot of conventional radio, and it sounds like not a lot of conventional radio broadcast radio, aside from what you were helping with, Carl, right? Because you you were um, at least putting uh, audio for some forward-looking NPR shows, and and, we, and and the thing that people often forget about NPR is, of course, it's, it's not a monolith. Uh, you know, stations are independent. There's There are programs that are independently produced that are just distributed by NPR over their satellite system, which you had access to. Um, but, but NPR itself, National Public Radio, which does produce, you know, the big national programs like... All Things uh, Considered. All Things Considered, Morning Edition, um, was not yet on the internet. And, and my understanding is you... You had you 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 were talking with them back then in 1994 ish. Yeah, so I mean, I had been on Science Friday and I was on Tech Nation a few times, and I think All Things Considered might have covered us when when we hit the New York Times. And um, I uh, my lawyer was the former general counsel of National Public Radio, so he had some contacts in that world. But no, they weren't heavily involved. They were right down the street. I was in Washington D.C. and they had their brand new headquarters on Massachusetts Avenue. Uh, so I went in a few times and, and visited, but no, I, I, I didn't know, you know, they didn't have a new media group and they didn't have a, you know, what's the future of NPR. They might've had a group doing that, but they certainly weren't talking to me. And- uh, on Radio Survivor, like a few episodes ago, we had Andrew Bottomley on, who's today is um, acting as a, as a co-host of the program, uh, asking Carl Malmood questions today. And we, we sort of got... Um, we sort of started speculating about whether or not National Public Radio in the 90s um, was hostile to being on the Internet or indifferent to being on the Internet. Um, why did it take them – you know, in 1994, it might have been early, but in the year 2000, they were still um, behind the curve, right? They weren't, they weren't leading the way on the Internet, uh, if my memory serves me, if, if the history is right. So do you have any information about that? Do, do you know if anyone was, was excited for NPR to be on the internet or if anyone was hostile to the notion? Oh, yeah. There were a lot of individuals that were very forward-looking. There's some really smart hosts and some really good techs that work at NPR. And, you know, they knew what was going on. But management was going through their periodic, you know, new president just joined. We have a new strategic direction. We're, um, and they, they weren't indifferent. They were more like, ignorant they just didn't weren't following it so they i mean their techs knew what was going on but the managers were in the radio world and it, it was hard to get their attention i tried i tried but but i i didn't have any luck um hmm. and so 
looking again at 1994 in, in that sort of pivotal early internet period, um, did you make contact with other traditional, you know, terrestrial broadcasters or were you really more focused on figuring out what other types of audio content that really wasn't being broadcast in any sort of way onto, onto the internet? So NBC got really like excited with my internet world's fair. This is like 95 when I was doing that. And they said, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we, we want to be a sponsor. And I speaking to some fancy executive vice president and we signed an agreement and then they stiffed me. They never paid the money that, that was sponsorship. <laughs> and um, oh it was a hundred grand. I mean, it was, you know, real money, that, uh, uh, but they, they just ended up not paying. You know, and what the, is this, the, the, you know, the internet world fair, uh, I, I don't think I'd heard of this before. So you're saying in 1995, you, you threw the Internet World Fair. What, what, what was that? 96. 96. 96. So 95, we organized it. So the idea was, you know, let's do I, I mean, I was like enamored of World's Fairs, and, you know, from the late 1800s and the 1900s. And I was having lunch one day with Vint Cerf, the father of the Internet. And I said, yeah, Vint, we should do a World's Fair. And he was like, go for it. This would be great. And he was at MCI. And so I talked to a bunch of friends around the world and and we organized a World's Fair that ran for all of 1996. Um, we had 70 countries participating. And the question is, what does a World's Fair look like on the Internet? And, you know, we wanted to make it not just the net. And so we, we had a very fancy, you know, website. Um, but we also had a whole bunch of events in the real world. So Todd Macover, for example, um, MIT Media Lab, uh, very famous opera composer. Um, that's how I got to know the Media Lab better is because Todd called me up after he read about the World fair in the new york times and said i want to be part of this and he had a new opera that was like crowdsourcing music from the internet like it would be part of the opera and he had lincoln center was going to be his debut and so i worked with todd and we got lincoln center online and you know did live streaming of the brain opera we had people in japan doing all sorts of street fairs a guy named joey ito uh who was uh, again at the media lab as their director um ran a, a very fancy street fair there uh taiwan was totally into it um so Taiwan and Tibet really liked the World's Fair because early on I decided I, I was not the guy that was going to decide who, who could be a country because we had country pavilions. And so Taiwan came in and said, we want to do a country pavilion. I was like, go for it. Um, uh, we had an actual formal protest from China. They're saying you cannot possibly allow Taiwan to be a country. Uh, I said, look, you want to do a pavilion, do a pavilion, but I, I'm not going to, you know, like. So Taiwan was so like happy with this. They put Internet viewing pavilions in like every train station in mm. Taiwan, including the central train station, huge banners all over the place. And they had a dozen, you know, people wearing fancy, you know, World's Fair uniforms. And as people were going to catch their train, they would be, hello, would you like to see the Internet? Um, so it, it was really kind of fun. I, I traveled. I did six um, round the world trips in 95 to organize it and six round the world trips in 96. To, you know, I was meeting government ministers. We wow. got a letter, wow. letter. Yeah. Carl Malmud, uh, can you tell us about any special audio experiments at that Internet World's Fair in 1996? Was radio, uh, was time shifted audio a part of a part of the fair? Oh, it sort of was in the sense of like the brain opera, like, you know, brought in audio from like, you know, people could actually compose um, audio on, on Java apps that ran on your browser. And that became part of the opera in Lincoln Center. But no, radio yeah. w w was not like a 
key component. This was not a radio thing. It was a World's Fair thing. Um, but, you know, these metaphors kind of morph. I, I mean, you know, Internet radio wasn't really radio. It was something new. Um, and our World's Fair was something new. And we are speaking with Carl Malamud. He is uh, currently president and founder of Public Resource. The reason we're talking with him here on Radio Survivor is that he was responsible for what is often credited as the, the first internet radio talk show called Geek of the Week and some trailblazing efforts in putting audio both live and on demand on the internet back in, in the early 90s, starting around uh, 1993. This is Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reismandel. I'm here with Eric Klein, and we're also joined Hello. by our special co-host, uh, Professor Andrew Bottomley, hi, and uh, you know we're really digging into this into this into this prehistory because you know it's it's so easy for this stuff to get lost, and as well that you know because we've the internet has taken over our lives or become part of our lives in ways that that maybe some predicted in 1993. Uh, but was, but at the time, it was almost science fiction, right? Uh, right? Well, I'm certainly excited to talk to Carl today about the notion that, that all of the hacks that he was doing with audio on the internet um, was more about the joy of building something new and, de- mm-hmm. and demonstrating the technology rather than trying to uh, patent stuff and build, the, build a new company that would take over the world. Um, it's the internet of my youth that now I feel um, – like, uh, now I regret the nostalgia because of how so many gigantic internet companies seem to be, um, you know, uh, n- not acting in, in the public's best interest. And, and here was a time when, when building something online um, was for everybody. And, yeah. and, aud- and that, that's a very Radio Survivor uh, feeling <laughs> that, to, you know, that, that radio is here for all of us to be using to communicate with one another. And that, you know, back in the 90s, it, this was still... So it's still possible. Yeah, I want to touch on the podcasting thing because, you know, Geek of the Week, you, you did it, you live streamed, but also you put files up on the internet that people could download, right? So they could go listen on demand, uh, a fairly radical idea at the time. And during, you know, into the 20 teens, you know, uh, there was a company called Personal Audio that had a patent that they say covered podcasting, right? This was this is the one of the biggest stories of the decade, right? In, mean, in podcasting. Po- in yeah. the podcast industry. Right. So, you know, they, they had a patent which they filed for, I believe, in nineteen ninety six. And 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 originally uh their their ta- their technology was they were sending cassettes of <laughs> of magazines being read sort of er podcast in a way um, to people, you know, in a serialized fashion, which they then amended to say they would do it on the internet. And, 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 and it filed this patent before the, the name podcast had, had taken root before the, the sort of fundamental technology behind what we know as podcasting took root. The, the RSS feed that, that allows you to automatically download uh, an MP3 file enclosure. Uh, so they, they then went about, in the uh, in the late two thousands into the twenty teens, uh, threatening podcasters, uh, most famously uh, going after Adam Carolla, um, but they, I believe they also won judgments against uh, like CBS Interactive, uh, Discovery Networks, uh, saying that that basically anyone uh, making podcasts and and having to uh, you know and making money at them was going to oil, owe them a royalty because they had in fact invented uh, the medium. And uh, the Electronic Frontier Foundation uh, fought imagine? this. 
uh, in court, uh, but ultimately took it to the, you know, ultimately won a judgment at the patent office itself, right? Which is, which is the body which, which, with which you file patents and, and which you can also challenge a patent. And uh, one of the pieces of evidence that they used to, to get this patent invalidated was your show, Geek of the Week. And, and the EFF argued that the very fact that you had basically serialized audio, a weekly radio show. Prior art, right? That you had recorded and put on the internet as early as 1993, and they could demonstrate it. There was evidence to show that it existed and that there was even press coverage of it, was in effect prior art three years earlier saying that this idea of serialized audio on the internet existed. Um, what did you think? Did, you, did the EFF talk to you when, when, when this was going down? What did you think when you found out that that's something you did in 1993 was being used to kind of uh, uh, help the podcast industry in some extent not get all immediately stifled? Uh, by yeah, this. no. So I, I know the EFF folks very well. They're, they're yeah. in my law firm, law firm right now, okay. and, and and the folks did talk to me. So it turns out that my evidence, the stuff I had done, was actually thrown out by the tribunal, and EFF relied on other evidence that this had happened before. Uh, but there was some technicality. But but yeah, I, I mean, so I, I I'm always very when people say I invented, you know the first internet radio station, I'm always very quick to say, no, I didn't invent it. It was a hack. It was, it was applying technology in a way that made sense that rolled In some ways, out. would you say it was oh. like technology that was just waiting to be put together and somebody just yeah. had to po- provide some of the glue? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's all it was. It was a very stupid patent on podcasting. It's like the email patent. It's like so many of these business process and software patents. So one of the things I did at internet multicasting is I put the U.S. patent database on on the internet for the first time. Um, I actually bought all their data and put it online over the objections of the commissioner. Um, And it was my theory that the commissioner at the time, Bruce Lehman, was issuing bad patents knowingly, right? Mm -hmm. Because he made revenue based on patent filing fees and on selling Hmm. patent DVDs. Um, And I think he knew that a lot of the patents he was issuing were garbage. They they were not original. They they were not inventions. Um, And it was the beginning of a huge number of bad patents that have been since issued and are still being issued. If if you're a dot-com, one of the things you have to deal with is a patent thicket that the big companies like Apple and Samsung and IBM and the others have, and they can knock you out because they have so many patents and patent litigation is so expensive that there's just no way you can defend against these spurious claims that what you are doing somehow violates their intellectual property rights. It's, it's one of the more broken parts of our current economy. It's, it's not helping promote inventors. It is not promoting creativity and innovation. It's an arbitrage on stupid ideas. Um, It's a bargaining um, chip that you use to bargain with other big corporations, but it's not serving the purpose of the increase and diffusion of knowledge, which is what patents are supposed to do. Absolutely. And, and, and of course, 
you know, it's great that <laughs> this evidence could be submitted, whether it was from you or from from other sources, to uh, so that Radio Survivor here, which is a podcast in addition to being a radio show, uh, isn't subject to having to pay uh, royalties for the simple fact that we that we're right. making it and posting it online. Um, you know, because podcasting is, I would argue, you know, it, while it's certainly developed into a very robust business, uh, has been tremendous in in uh, tremendously instrumental in reviving. Uh, the popularity of voice and talk programming, audio right. programming. I mean, you say you say it's been a robust business, Paul, but I believe you even would know the data that the majority of what is being put out by humans on Earth is not monetized. Yes, yeah, is is for free <laughs> yeah. because they want to share yeah. their voice with listeners, and that um, seems very compatible with what with what you were trying trying to do at the time, Carl. And it seems like in some ways that you've dedicated uh, your your career to, and so. You know, how long did you continue to uh, work on these these internet broadcasts uh, of various sorts in audio uh, through the nineties? Uh, I ran internet multicasting through mid ninety six, and we just literally ran out of money. Uh, again, NBC stiffed us. Uh, it was really hard raising money for an operational nonprofit, particularly by like ninety six, ninety seven. You know, companies like Netscape were beginning to happen. The you mean all my celebration, all my celebration of the world of non commercial giving giving things away for free didn't turn out. Well, I, I, I just couldn't keep it going. And yeah. so my colleagues overseas kept the World's Fair going, um, which was nice, particularly in Japan and uh, Rob Blockchild in the Netherlands. Uh, Nick Negroponte gave me a place to land for a little while at the Media Lab to catch my breath. Um, and then I went over to Japan as a visiting professor at Keio University for mm-hmm. a little while. Um, and again, I, I wrote my book about the World's Fair and uh, MIT Press went ahead and published that. I got the Dalai Lama to write the forward which was very cool uh, even just as cool laurie anderson wrote the afterwards so um I, I i felt like i was i i was talking to real rock stars um she was always one of my heroes anyway so <laughs> and and so internet multicast is the name of your organization and so what you were doing so you, part of your what you were producing was the world's fair the internet world's fair uh you were producing these various broad uh, multicasts or broadcasts on the internet was there anything else you were involved in yeah, we put the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. Patent right. Office okay. on the Internet and then shoved the databases back down their throat and made them do it, <laughs> uh, which was very successful. Uh, my friend Marshall Rose and I um, came up with a system called the Phone Company, which allowed you to send free faxes to anyone using email. Hmm. Um, it was the first use of the Internet to do bypass, the idea that faxes and phone calls would go over the Internet instead of over traditional telephone lines. So it was somewhat controversial um, because, in theory, the Federal Communications Commission regulated that stuff. But uh, we ended up with with service in dozens and dozens of countries. It, it was fun. Uh, a couple of the components of that have, have uh, survived in modern voice over the Internet protocol. So a, a little bit of what we did there. And it was mostly the work that Marshall did um, that, that made that happen. So when you when you think back to that time, uh, you know, and and you know, you've had quite a bit of time in between. Uh, what do you see? How do you how do you view the legacy of of those of those early days? Certainly, by 1996, uh, your organization was not the only one um, either doing live or even archived audio on the internet. It, things had started to uh, 
to become a little bit more common. Some radio stations had joined uh, the fray, as had as did uh, you know pure play internet only broadcasters. But yeah, re- re- remember Paul Jones put radio stations up in like ninety three, ninety four. So that that had been happening. Rob Glazer came along with Real Audio, and in fact, my my current lawyer is David Halperin, a uh, very well known Washington guy. He was a speechwriter for Bill Clinton, but little known fact, he was a co founder of Real Audio with Rob Glazer, um, because when Rob first started Real Audio, he thought it would be a progressive radio station on the internet. Progressive, mm. you know, was the name of his company. Yeah, and, and you mean like politically it. progressive, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that didn't fly. There was no money for that. And so he ended <laughs> up doing, doing the streaming thing. Um. <laughs> Interesting. Hey, Carl, I'd like, uh, as we round out the, today's radio program and maybe uh, head off into the podcast, uh, I'd love to return to Andrew's question from a, from half half the show ago, where you had this choice uh, in the in the 1994 time, uh, where where you where where you chose audio, where you chose to make radio with with the internet, and um, you your answer to Andrew was like, well, audio is easier than video, videos videos even harder. But um, I wonder if you could answer the question again about what did you gain by um, by recording radio shows and giving them out on the internet as opposed to uh, you know a newsletter writing stuff down. Why was it important to talk to people and record the interview? Oh, there were a lot of like newsletters out there and you know, that wouldn't have been like very inventive. In fact, that was a big business in those days. Uh, a lot of people selling newsletters and stuff. Nobody was doing audio on the net. Um, and I always look for things that, that, you know, if, if other people are doing it, then they should go ahead and do it. Uh, I look for opportunities where, where people aren't doing it. And I think it's maybe ready for prime time and audio seemed to be ready for prime time. I wonder if, do you know of any examples of like, um, you know, by recording interviews, uh, did you did you learn something that you would not have, you know, did did you create something that would have otherwise been been uh, left out? Right. Yeah, if we had just done the live streaming, I, in fact, I remember when Associated Press um, came in and we were doing the National Press Club luncheons live for the first time. Um, it was Al Gore, actually. And so the reporter sitting there looking at my son's workstation and he goes, well, can you tell how many people are listening? I said, yeah, six. And he was really disappointed. He's like, what? Um, I said, yeah, but they're on four continents. Look, this guy's in Australia. This guy's in Germany. This guy's in Japan. And he was a little more impressed at that point. If we had not done the time shifting, the record, I mean, it was obvious to me that that live was interesting and I wanted to do it. Um, we even had a 24 by 7 rock and roll station on the Internet because we actually got a BMI provisional license. And because they didn't BMI is a, a rights organization, right? That pays yeah, songwriters yeah. royalties. Yeah. Yeah. And because they didn't know what the internet was i I was able to basically you know demand that they give me a public radio you know streaming and so we were we were doing live streaming a rock and roll but it was very clear that was going to be a very small audience uh whereas the time shifting thing the recorded to disc let people listen to it when they want uh had a substantial effect and like i said there were hundreds of people listening to geek of the week episodes even today I'm getting hundreds of people per week listening to Geek of the right, Week. Right, because they're on the Internet Archive, right? <laughs> this stuff yeah, is all yeah. still available for folks. Thank you to the amazing people, of course, at, at the Internet Archive. Uh, so a, a little known story, I, and then I'm sorry, Andrew, I didn't mean to cut you no. off. Uh, Brewster Kale, who runs the Internet Archive, came up to me in 1996. And he said, Carl, I want to archive the web. 
And I was like, okay, well, that's pretty ambitious, even in those days. And he goes, well, do you have any hardware? And I happen to have a, a tape jukebox uh, that we use for the Securities and Exchange Commission data. And I didn't need it anymore because the SEC was online. And so I gave Brewster his first hardware um, for what ended up becoming the Internet Archives. So I, I've known Brewster for ages and ages. Uh, I love the work he does. He is an amazing story of someone dedicating his winnings from .com, where he did very well, uh, to a life of public service. And he has built something just amazing, uh, absolutely amazing, at a, a whole different scale than I operate at. I mean, this is like major league. So. Andrew, did you have a question? Something you oh, want to come in? Yeah, uh, no, Professor no, Andrew I, I Bottomley. Was, I was just going to say, you know, Carl, it's, it's interesting that you were saying right there um, that, you know, you're kind of most proud of the asynchronous radio, uh, the time shifted stuff that you were doing from like 93 to, and 94. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was like January 95 when you started doing the live streaming um, with the RTFM and the music uh, programming that you're talking about. Um, and funny enough, right, that's really for the rest of the 90s, um, most folks who were working in the internet radio or, or streaming audio space were doing stuff that was live streamed. Uh, I mean, there was some programming that was like archived online for, for later listening, but um, most of it until really the early 2000s when people like Dave Weiner come along with you know, audio blogging that became podcasting, you know, it was, it was almost another decade before time shifted audio really became a thing again, um, at least in terms of the primary sort of focus that it, it's largely become with podcasting now. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I don't know if you have anything more to say about that, but I just thought it was interesting that you made that distinction there because uh, it, again, it was like live streaming seemed to be the thing when we talk about nineties audio on the internet I think most people, until they hear something like this, weren't even really aware that there was the time shifted or asynchronous audio as early as it was, of course, because that's where you started. So the live streaming thing, and, and I, I had talks with many, many people about that. It's like, look, live stream your, your program, but also put it on disc. And people weren't doing that. And Dave Weiner's brilliant insight was to, you know, bring MPEG-3 and RSS and the concept of audio blogging in and show people that that made sense. Uh, he got people like Adam Curry that were actually like, you know, doing professional programming. Um, and it was kind of a right place, right time, right idea kind of thing. And so Dave, Dave kind of pushed that over the hump. But you're right. In the 90s, people were like, you know, time shifting. I, I mean, there were um, the beginning of digital video recorders were beginning to happen by the late 90s. So people were time shifting their television. Uh, but that wasn't live streaming. That was coming in over cable, being recorded to disc, and then you could watch your program later on your TV. Um, you know, Carl, it's interesting. I, uh, I did a radio program on community radio uh, that I – ended up distributing like we do radio survivor now but through the 90s into the 2000s and it was circa about 2002 so a little ahead of the podcasting rss specification that i started posting my shows uh online because uh, again a little community radio show in in you know urbana illinois uh has so much of a footprint especially because it was kind of uh it was about um you know independent media and technology so something of maybe broad interest, uh, and you know, it seemed to me, gosh, uh, you know, only so many people can ever hear this Friday at five thirty p.m. I, you know, even people who live in the area. So I, you know, why aren't more people using the internet for time shifting? Uh, you know, and eventually it turned into a podcast, and 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 eventually, you know, and 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 it became syndicated because the first 
you know, community radio manager uh, in Moscow, Idaho, got a hold of me and said, hey, you know, if you could be a little more timely getting these posted each week, not just when you feel like it, uh, we would run it on our, on our, you know, on our uh, radio, on our radio station here in Idaho. And, and I put it up. And, and, and so, and, and I had the similar thing, although I'm, I'm already, you know, at that point, 10 years, 10 years behind you. But at the time, I, I, I will have to say I was aware uh, of Geek of the Week. I became aware of it fairly early there there in the '90s, working you know in in, in university computer labs, and so with pretty good access to uh, internet and Sun workstations, as it turned out in many cases. So, um, but it's just a little little anecdote, you know, because I think it was it's it's like this potentiality that was waiting to be realized. And and, well, that, that, and and you kind of uh, showed that that it was there, but it even took even longer before it, it it took fire. So a lot of people, when they create a new service, they they create the service they want to see, mm-hmm. um, but they're not creating the service that's going to reach people. And the ones that are successful are the ones that deliver something to people that they actually want and can use. Um, and that's a lot of the, the Silicon Valley folks don't get that. They're, they're doing what they think you need rather than something you might actually want. Um, and that, that was kind of, again, with the delayed audio, it just seemed obvious to me that if I wanted to... Uh, not only that, we had time changes, right? So, I mean, I was like in Washington, D.C. and a lot of my listeners were in Japan you know what what am I going to do put this on at three in the morning um Mm -hmm. it just didn't make any sense but but a lot of people didn't get that and particularly a lot of the early dot-com startups in the kind of mid to late 90s um you know they created things that they wanted that some engineer thought you might want but not something you really wanted and, and especially not something you really needed and that's something companies like Google got right it's like you need to be able to search the internet better um and all of a sudden like everybody's using your service it's a lesson i learned if you can build something that gets millions of eyeballs you have a lot more credibility when you're meeting some government minister or member of congress and saying you know you ought to be doing things differently or the law ought to be different or your government you know it infrastructure sucks and it could be better um if they look at you and you're writing white papers for some think tank they're like okay thank you so much for the visit if you say listen I have 5 million people using my service every day. That's really different. Politicians respect eyeballs. Um, They respect the fact that there's a lot of people out there that care about this. Absolutely. Uh, Carl Malamud, you know, you founded and are now president of of an organization called Public Resource. I wanted to give you an opportunity at least, and I'd like to hear more, a little bit more about about what uh, that organization is dedicated to right now. Uh, so I started Public Resource in 2007. I did a couple years working for my friend John Podesta as Chief Technology Officer at the Center for American Progress. And that was fun. You know, Washington, D.C. Um, helped turn around their computing infrastructure. But I, I decided that I was better off running a small nonprofit. And, and I wanted to get back to like, you know, rolling up my sleeves and, and doing real things. And so I started public resource with the idea of making the law available. Um, and, and with the idea of, of revisiting some of my successes from the nineties in which I put something online and then got the government to take and it. And by over. you say t- putting the law online, uh, mm-hmm. can you, can you say more like what that means? What does it mean to put the law online? Well, the first thing we did in 2007, if you wanted a U.S. Court of Appeals opinion, you had to go to Lexis or West and pay money. It was like the these, these private commission. databases that charge you yeah, to, yeah. To, to access 
you know, either big bucks. yeah, big bucks, big bucks, big bucks, and they just weren't available. Uh, some of the courts were beginning to put their current opinions online, but if you're doing the law, you need to read that opinion from 1950 or 1930 or whatever. And so the first thing we did is we put all the um, U.S. Court of Appeals opinions on the internet for free access. Mm-hmm. Um, we put all the IRS Form 990s, which are the nonprofit returns, online. Um, so that means you could sp- go look up the look up the returns of a, of a nonprofit that who you might want to give money to, for instance. Yeah, you could look up the returns. You could figure out how much they paid their CEO. You could figure out whether they paid for first class air travel. Yeah. Um, but they weren't readily available at the time. And it also it also um, uh, democratizes co- you know community journalism. Right there at one time, journalism, if you wanted to dig into this information, would have been uh, cost prohibitive to do that work. But, um, you know, like, so now my, my friends in a, at a community radio station can look up, can look up nonprofits for free, you know. Uh, we also did a lot of, of, of multimedia. So uh, David Ferriero was the archivist of the United States, and uh, he still is, an uh, amazing guy. Um, he let me send my volunteers into the National Archives with DVD duplicators, and we managed to copy 6,000 um, government videos, and we put them up on, uh, on YouTube and Internet Archive. I called it FedFlix. There's no late fees in the public domain, all public domain video. Uh, we've had 90 million views on that channel on YouTube, um, just old government films that we copied. Uh, When John Boehner became Speaker of the House, the very first thing he did was send a letter to me, um, carbon copied Daryl Issa, the chairman of the Government Oversight Committee, and asked me to put the committee's video of congressional hearings online. Really? Um, Yeah. So as part of that, it was kind of funny. Uh, We got a minute. Can I tell a story? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah. So I'll let everyone know that we're we're in podcast land. So let's we can we can roll your logs. You'll we, love yeah, we can, we can loosen the belt and, okay. and talk. You'll, you'll love this story. So the, the idea was I would put the government um, uh, oversight and government reform committee online. Um, and so I got a letter from the speaker saying, you know, please work with Chairman Issa to do that. And that meant things like I, I, I would get transcripts of the hearings like right after they happened and I could bounce them on YouTube and add closed captioning. We were doing high resolution video. I was teaching the committee how to do things. But as part of that, I was allowed to put the full archives of the committee online. So I knocked on the door of the House Broadcast Studio, which does all the video from congressional hearings. Um, so the way the, the House works is they have their own people doing the video from hearings. And then if you want, if you're NBC or C-SPAN, you can bring your cameras in. Uh, but House Broadcast Studio has way more than, you know, like NBC or those folks. So I knocked on their door and I said, hi, I have a letter from the Speaker of the House. Uh, may I have access to the archives? I said, you know, we're really busy. We're really busy. And I said, well, you know, maybe I can help you. I said, well, it's in a professional format. I don't think you'll be able to work with it. And I said, well, uh, give me a sample. And so they, they handed me a Blu-ray drive that had an MPEG-2 transport stream on it. And I said, yeah, I can read it. Uh, it's fine. And so they, they FedExed me. I was back in California then. So they FedExed me a binder that had 50 Blu-rays in it. And I opened it up, and the first one says, you know, Government Oversight Committee, May 2nd. The second one says House Judiciary Committee. Third says House Ways and Means. And I thought to myself, you know what? They didn't just send me my committee. They sent me all the committees. And so I ran out and I bought six Blu-ray drives and I hooked them up to my Mac. (laughs) I copied all 50 of them. I FedExed them back and I called them up and I said, well, I'm done with that. Do you have any more? 
I said, oh, yeah, we got lots more. And so all summer they were sending me these binders. Um, and then I went back to Washington and I said, well, okay, we're done with the binders. Do you have anything else? Yeah, we have all these disk drives in the corner. And so I brought those and copied them. And I ended up with 14,000 hours of congressional hearings over a decade um, that I put on the Internet Archive. And I had this meeting in the speaker's office with the general counsel because uh, I had proposed to them that they could actually put these things live on the Internet to backbone. Uh, C-SPAN was working with me. We were going to run a high speed line into the Capitol and do live, you know, broadcast you know, uh, resolutions, you know, uh, video out to the Internet. Um, and, and I was trying to get them to allow us to do that. And yeah, which, would said, change, which would change, uh, you know, American citizens and beyond access to what's going on in government. You oh, yeah, yeah. And, 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 the the, and the selling point was that, you know, YouTube could download all this stuff because we were proposing 24 simultaneous high-resolution streams, right, 8 megabits per second, like really high def. Um, and YouTube could download it. The Internet Archive could download it. Your local NBC station could. And so if you're the member of Congress from California and you give a speech, your local TV station could have broadcast-quality video. And right. this would all have been at no cost to the government. Um, and we would have had it up and running in 60 days. We had actually identified where in the basement the fiber was going to run. Um, and we were ready to go. And so I was having this meeting, you know, showing them pictures. I had bought the hardware, you know, all the MPEG-2 encoders and all that stuff. And, and so we went through the kind of pitch on that. And I said, by the way, there's one other item I wanted to bring up, which is it appears that the House Broadcast Studio – sent me the entire Congress by mistake. Um, you don't have a problem with that, do you? Because it's all public domain. At which point they cut me off at the knees. They called the broadcast studio and they said, don't give them any more data. Um, but I already had my 14,000 hours of, of, of video and was able to put them up on the archive. And it's still there, 2002 to 2011. So, and, but it's... And but it's crazy that we don't have the rest. Really. Oh, it's nuts. It's nuts. Uh, Library of Congress stepped in and said that's our job to archive all this stuff. And they have it in Culpeper. They have a very fancy audiovisual yeah. archive in Virginia. Uh, but they don't make it available. The, the, de <laughs> the deal was each chairman gets to decide whether their stuff gets out the door or not. It's all complicated. But, yeah, they, they could have high-res broadcast Funny. quality video uh, on the Internet for everybody. Carl, um, we should let yeah. you know that uh, our podcast has this year started to be um, archived in the Library of Congress. Oh, that's right. Oh, good. So um, if there's any, uh, if I wanted to ask you at one point, just as to be cute, if there's anything you wanted to tell future historians uh, who found us uh, about uh, anything at all. The, well, the, that the, the Library of Congress has these amazing archives. So they've done a beautiful job putting photographs online. Uh, just absolutely. I mean, you know, some of these are really high-resolution TIFF images. You can make posters out of them. I have. Right. Um, of American history. Photographs of uh, Oh, of, of all sorts of stuff from American history. I, you know, World War II posters. I, I'm just all the, uh, all the artifacts of American history. Uh, the Smithsonian has done a great job. But when it comes to the AV resources, audiovisual, Library of Congress, is, is just 
burying that stuff. And my hope is that the historians of the future will have access to this material yeah. um, because it's important and it's useful. And it's amazing how much of that stuff is useful today. If you're yeah. a school kid and you're, you're, you know, taking a class, uh, some of this stuff that's in the archives is just absolutely like, but you, you have know, to go to Virginia to see it. Like you can go and wow. like, you know, file a yeah. form and, and, and take a look at it and it's maybe even of, get a copy, but that's it's because of licensing. Is there, is some, this some of it's licensing, some of it, I, I've, it's been explained to me. Uh, I've talked with folks there in the past. Uh, so licensing is certainly if they don't own the license that, that you know it's under copyright and not theirs or not public domain. Uh, they often explain it's throughput. You know, just uh, w- you know, it's volume, right? Is what is what they'll say. And there's too so much. the the Smithsonian worked through that. I had a little tiff with them in like 2005 over because they they were asserting. Uh, uh, that you needed a license before you used anything from the Smithsonian, even if it was public domain, and they were they were not making the high res available, and and so we went through a. a big song and dance with them. I, I put a site up called What Would Luther Burbank Do? Because they were asserting copyright over a bunch of seed catalogs from the late 1800s. They actually sent takedowns. And just just last year, uh, they removed all those, those restrictions and license uh, agreements, and they've kind of embraced open, and they've done a beautiful job putting their stuff online. Um, and so this stuff takes time. Uh, nice. Na- National Archives has been doing the same thing. They, they've been very aggressively trying to make their materials available. And I, I think the Library of Congress will get there eventually. You know, Carl, I mean, you seem very sanguine to me. Um, you know, and having done this now for, uh, you know, going on uh, three decades or something like that, right? And you've, you've had these moments when you're, you're dealing with, you know, both government organizations that are nonprofits, corporations, trying to, to egg them into opening up or taking advantage of these opportunities. And you sound to me still to be very sanguine about it, and even, even in the face of opposition or uh, policy decisions that you think maybe are incorrect. It seems like you keep, you keep at it. Is, is that right? I mean, it's, uh, you know, that, that you continue to, to, to give it a shot. Being labeled a, a terrorist by the state of Georgia. <laughs> yeah, they were a little over the top on that one. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I, I was in, till the pandemic happened, spending six months a year in India, uh, where I, I still have a very large team of people doing work and many active projects. And I'd get a lot of Kids coming up to me, kids, university students, young hackers saying, you know, I want to do something significant. What can I do? And my advice is always that if you want to do anything significant, it's going to take a decade. Uh, pick one thing and just stick with it. And don't don't let them, uh, you know, doing a hackathon and having pizza and then going home is, isn't a way that you you change things or invent something fundamental. And so you got to have the long view. Um, you've got to be willing to let people tell you you're, you're just totally full of it. You know, what you're trying to do is impossible. There's all these reasons it can't be done. And, and just look for those opportunities where, where you can kind of, you know, where the data is there and you can get a copy of it, you can get it legally, uh, and you put it online and people actually begin to use the stuff. And, and that's, that's how you change minds and, and you know, uh, get people trying to do things. And where does your, uh, for lack of a better way of, better way of calling it, uh, your positive attitude come from? <laughs> why, why, why do you, why, what, what caused you to, to have this outlook, even going, you know, going back to, to 1993? 
Well, I, I mean, so you got to have a positive outlook. You you also need a little bit of backbone because, you know, when, when you're dealing with some of these folks like the state of Georgia and, you know, I, I mean, they were serious about the terrorism thing. Why, why did they um, call you a terrorist? I don't know this story. Oh, uh, the reason they called me a terrorist is I had written a book called Exploring the Internet in 1991 and I had been haranguing the International Standards Organization to make all their standards available because a lot of these international standards are incredibly expensive. They hundreds and hundreds of dollars. To buy a copy of um, them, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, to buy a copy yeah. and it's copy Copyright restricted, and, and so you can only can, have one copy. And what can you do with that information? What is oh, it? Oh, these are, well, in the, the case of the, of the ITU, these were the standards that explained how the telephone network worked. Um, and so if you were building the internet, you needed these underlying standards. So, for example, one of the standards was was how you compress audio, um, right? Um, the, I, the, the AU files we used for Geek of the Week, which was the format that Sun had, was using an international telecommunication union standard to do the encoding. Um, there, there were many other protocols that we needed for the internet. So that, that's why it was important for me. Um, and I was writing books about the internet at the time, and I was part of the Internet Engineering Task Force. And, and as part of that, I visited the International Standards Organization, and they, they, they totally trashed me. They, they, were, they, they thought I was just totally full of it, I, very unwelcome reception. And so in my book, Exploring the Internet, in which I explained about all these visits and that I was making, I, I made a, a, a joke about how maybe I should just buy all their standards and put them online. That was a form of standards terrorism. Um, I didn't do it. It was a joke. It was a sardonic remark. A lot of people thought it was funny. But the state of Georgia, when they were researching their suit against me, they, they, they got my book and they read it. And they said, ah, Malamud advocates terrorism. And so in their complaint, that that's what they said. And then later on, when they asked for a quarter million dollars, because they wanted the district court level and they wanted, you know, attorney's fees, they told the judge that I, I had a practice, a continuing practice of terrorism of, of you know. What did and, you and do they, to piss off Georgia? Oh, well, you know, they had co copyright over their official state laws and they, oh, they, they okay. felt very strongly about it. And so I bought a copy of all the standards uh, of their codes and I, I bought them, I scanned them, I put them on the Internet. And then I sent a letter to the attorney general and the speaker of the house. And I said, you'll be delighted to know that the official code of Georgia annotated is now available. And I made a copy of the OCGA and I put it on a little peanut thumb drive and I included it enclosed it with the letter. I say, you, you, you will find enclosed a copy of the OCGA in digital form. I'm sure you'll be delighted. And I sent it not just to the AG and the speaker of the house, but to the head of legal services and the state fire marshal and a bunch of others. And so they, they thought that was over the top um Weird. instead of but i mean you gave them free you gave them their information back to them for free anyway we don't have to get into it um, gave their, their free information back to them for free right. but they were keeping well, they had they they had an exclusive deal with LexisNexis, one of those right. legal services providers, in which Lexis had the exclusive right to sell the official code of Georgia annotated. Um, and so, the idea that I was giving it away was like like they, they they were not happy. Carl, we we need to go back and talk a little bit about your experience in college radio, if you don't mind. 
High school radio. Uh, So I uh, uh, went to public schools all my life, and um, I was a trumpet player. I I, I spent much of my early life doing nothing. That was my only interest in life was playing trumpet. Um, And I went to the Interlochen camp in the summer, Um, a pretty famous camp. A couple thousand students go there. It's it's really, you know, really top-notch musical instruction. They also had an academy, which was a boarding school, um, which was, you know, fairly expensive. Um, and so there were a lot of rich kids there, but you know, there were scholarships and very, very talented music instruction. And so I went to my parents after doing summer camp and I, I had some money, uh, saved up for college. And I said, I want to spend all my college money and go to the Interlochen Arts Academy. So I went there, um, as a trumpet major, but they also had a radio station. And so I became part of the radio station, um, which was fun, um, what did you do uh, on the radio? What, yeah. did, what, what, you know, what kind of show or, or what did you produce? Uh, I did the news. Um, and so we, we had a wire service from AP and UPI, and it was coming in on one of those old printers that mm-hmm. scrolled out. And so I'd come in every day, and I'd, I'd cut the news down and figure out how much you know five minutes was and read the news. And this was um, – was this uh, – so oh – wait, okay. Um, uh, what, what is it called? Um, was this uh, – a carrier current a radio how was this radio station oh i think it was low, i think it was low power but there was actually an npr station on campus as well and so i spent some time over there uh we had a lot of famous people coming to campus and so i recorded interviews with a whole bunch of like famous poets and put those online uh, online on the radio um we weren't online in those days mm-hmm. this is like um, 1980 right or no, seven, 75, 75 75 okay. yeah yeah so early on. So, I, I mean, I, I did it. It was fun. It was my minor. Uh, I learned a little bit about radio. I, I don't know how good I was, but but um, I learned a little bit about it. So I had some interest uh, in college. I didn't do that. Um, I, I didn't join the local radio station in Indiana University, but um, but but it, I, I had some early exposure to it. So it, if uh, if it's all right, Paul and Eric, could I ask Carl a couple of questions? Yeah, please, please, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's more than all right, Andrew. It's yeah, no. So right. I, I have two questions related, going back to the you know to the internet multicasting service days, um, and that sort of period from ninety three to ninety six when you were active there with internet radio. I guess uh, the first is just you know um, what what would you say you're most proud of? Um, maybe even particularly beyond the larger kind of apparatus, um, was there any particular program or channel or um, or even an interview that you did that you think is like just really stands out in your memory as being a you know a particularly sort of standout moment that you're that you're still proud of to this day? Well, Press Club well, it was amazing. I mean, Press Club. It was Larry King. It was it was Al Gore. It was the Dalai Lama. I got to see Salman Rushdie. Um, you know, because he had just broken his his quarantine after the um, after the issues with the Iran fatwa. and yeah, the fatwa. And so he showed up at the Press Club to do an interview. I, I happened to be there, and I you know brought my dat recorder up and interview and and um, recorded him. So I, I, I was very pleased with that. Uh, Harper Audio worked out great. Uh, we helped get the Kennedy Center online with original programming, and that was, again, Marty Lucas did a lot of that heavy lifting, but, but getting them online was great. I was also pretty proud of Geek of the Week, which was a big stretch for me because I wasn't like a radio guy, and um, I was talking to a lot of people who are very technical and not necessarily reaching out to a, a general audience, and so the fact we were actually able to do 
all those interviews with people that um, many of them, like Brewster Kale and Tim Berners-Lee and others, ended up like going places. Um, so no, it was fun doing it. Um, getting my congressional press credentials is probably the thing I'm most proud of. Um, you know, being able to walk into the U.S. Capitol straight by security and walk into the basement of the Capitol into these machine rooms without an escort because in those days security wasn't that tight. Um, and so I had free run of the entire U.S. Capitol. It's great with those those press badges. Um, <laughs> yeah. The other question I wanted to ask is because you mentioned obviously um, that. Uh, you know, you were just kind of hacking this together. And, and I think that's actually a, a theme that I know in my book. I mean, I, I, that's something that I talk about with a lot of those early um, initiatives was was particularly people coming from a computer background, computer science, computer programming background, um, looking to do something new, something different, something just fun or cool in, in some cases. Um, and kind of, lit- and yeah, you know, it was like the technology was there and it was just sort of like wiring things together. And like you say, some, you know, I think a lot of it ended up being a case of someone was going to do it and, you know, and you have, but it still took someone with quite a lot of initiative and, um, and someone who with a, quite a lot of, you know, various skills to do it. But um, I wonder if you could point to maybe a few other folks who were working around the same time as you um, that you think, you know, made some other, you know, really notable initiatives and maybe folks who, um, who we don't get to talk about quite so much. I mean, for instance, you mentioned in passing earlier on uh, Paul Jones um, and I know actually when I was on Radio Survivor a few weeks ago, we were talking about the college radio stations. Um, and actually, I'm a, uh, you know, I regret I didn't I don't think I actually mentioned Paul by name, but Paul Jones um, is uh, was working at uh, University of uh, North Carolina, Chapel Hill um, with the Sunsight program that was there. And he was really uh, and he was a he was a faculty member there. Um, at the time. Uh, so he wasn't a student, but he was working with uh, a lot of students who were involved with WXYC, which is the radio station. And so when they started working on um, the project to create what was one of the first uh, or really the first and, and uh, live uh, simulcast of a, a radio station on the Internet, uh, Paul was really uh, you know, crucial in, in helping them make that happen. So I think he's a name that most people probably don't know and, and, and perhaps could or should know. Um, are, are there any others that you would uh, you point to as being in this sort of streaming audio space, internet radio space, people who uh, whose efforts deserve to be sung a bit more? Well, so Paul especially. So, you know, Paul just retired after 42 years at the University of North Carolina, and um, he's gotten a lot of notice for his early work in, you know, the, putting the radio station online. He also was uh, the person that put the uh, put Clinton's radio addresses on the Internet. White House called him up and got him to do that. But, you know, his huge contribution was he ran SunSight, which was the ultimate open source repository. So if you were using Sun computers or any other of the open operating oh, yeah, systems. I remember this. Yeah, that, that's where you went to download all your software. So it's the very first big repository. He's also an award-winning poet, um, like really like major, major league poet, like knows Nobel prize winners and, and works with them. And, and so he's done, and he's like currently doing work with the writers association in North Carolina. So very much an unsung 
hero. Uh, Van Jacobson, um, uh, Steve Kasner, and Steve Deering were the three techies that created the whole streaming media work. Uh, Van Jacobson especially did some amazing technical work. He was at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. Um, but he's the guy that figured out how to like get video to actually work on the net. And they invented the protocols like RTSP um, and other protocols that are currently being used to, to stream. Um, and, and form the basis for things like like SIP, which is the protocol used for internet telephone calls. Um, and so they, they really were the, the 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 folks that that started it all. And what I was doing at first, I was just watching what they were doing. And they were the ones I called when I couldn't get the lines working at the Lincoln Center, for example. It was Van Jacobson sitting out in California that went tap, 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 tap on his computer. And he said, oh, you have a limit on your router on port number three, type this in and it'll all work, right? You know, he was the guy that could sit there a thousand miles away and like figure out what you were doing wrong. Um, So they made an amazing contribution. Uh, This was a time when um, it wasn't just audio, there were uh, applications were starting to happen on the internet. So the internet had been a place that was email and and file transfer protocol. Uh, but you know, uh, Tim Berners Lee was sitting in 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 Switzerland and invented this thing called the web. And when I first saw the web, I said, ah, that's never going to work. It'll never scale. Um, but, you know, it turns out it really <laughs> did work. Uh, Brewster Kale uh, had invented the first search engine uh, called Waze, uh, which was used to do searches of databases on the internet. And he actually sold that to AOL. And it's how he got his first money to, you know, move on to, you know, what, what ended up being the internet archive at the end of that path. Um, Electronic mail went all multimedia because before that, uh, you know, it was not international. So things like, you know, accents on your name were not possible, right? You couldn't have an E with an accent. Uh, you couldn't have images in your email. You couldn't have HTML in your email. And so the folks that were doing email protocols developed that. Um, significant changes in the domain name system with people like Paul Vixie, uh, Paul Macapetris, and others uh, that were kind of pioneers in that area. And so they were building the infrastructure that allowed the internet to scale exponentially uh, for a period of 20 years after that. And without that fundamental underpinning, it wouldn't have worked. And in fact, there was another internet in those days. It was called Open Systems Interconnection. Um, and it's what, what the big boys thought was going to be the future of the net. It's what the telephone companies and the International Standards Organization and, and, you know, IBM and the U.S. Defense Department, they thought that was going to be the net that we would use and that telephone companies would, would sell you services. And an example of that is, is SMS texting, which was 20 cents a text. And that was their model of the internet. It was going to be a, a, you know, a, a menu of options and you paid for everything. Imagine paying per email. Just imagine oh, metered email. Yeah. That, that was their vision. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, that was their vision. Um, and I'm very proud to have been part of this world at the Internet Engineering Task Force that said that's not the world we want. And it was, you know, thousands it's of people paying, paying per search, too. I mean, like not just what you put out there, what you want. That that was the model. And if you look at like cable companies and, you know, their their vision of the world was that you would get a menu and you would buy something and then consume it. And our vision was that the Internet was a fundamental infrastructure that you could yeah. build anything you wanted on top without asking for permission. Well, on that, on that note, I wonder if there's anything about, especially um, 
you can answer this question if you don't want to talk about radio on the internet, but if there's anything about radio on the internet right now that um that could work differently if if it was engineered in a different way, but now we have what we have. I I don't know. I think there's a lot of people doing good things and many of them are doing different things. Uh, I personally am beginning to get back into this world of, you know, sending broadcast out. I'm, I'm, um, I, I don't know if I would call it podcasting because we're also doing video, but I would like this video to gracefully degrade so that if you just listen to my program in your car as audio, it's going to make just as much sense as if ah. you watch it. So uh, we're also going to do full closed captioning on, on everything we're doing and then translate those closed captions into some of the Indian languages because we have a very large audience in India. So we're, we're going to do Hindi, you know, closed captioning as well as English. Um, and so I'm beginning to try to, you know, play with that and understand I'm working with Marty Lucas again and a guy named Kirk Walter who ran O'Reilly Media's whole video operation for many, many years. Um, in fact, yesterday we, we got our black magic cinema camera up, uh, got the lights working. Um, I got my teleprompter software working. Um, we're, we're beginning wow. to do uh, voiceovers. Uh, we actually have Tad Robinson, an award-winning blues singer, is going to do our voiceover work for us. So, so by gracefully de- decay, you mean like if 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 someone is is sitting in the middle of uh, you know Silicon Valley with the best internet there is, they could get the full the full experience. But if someone's off uh, on their mobile device in the middle of the continent of uh, of Asia, uh, they could they could get the 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 four frames a second version that you were talking about. Well, not only that, if if you just want to listen to audio in your car, that works. If you don't want audio or video and you just want to read the transcript, we're going to have a transcript with every single program. And frankly, I think anyone podcasting should be issuing transcripts anyway. Um, that's a basic accessibility thing. Um, I, but, just but tell I, us how to know, pay yeah. for it. And we'll do it. <laughs> Well, it's actually not that expensive. Uh, you'd be shocked at how cheap it is to get transcripts done. I, I mean, it really, and they're really quick. Um, it, it's, I, I mean, you know, an hour program is, is, you know, 20 or 30 bucks. Um, it's not that big a deal. Um, I, I mean, it's still money, but, but yeah, we, 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 we run, we run a very low to the ground operation. No, I get that. I get that. I get that. Um, yeah. can, you, can Carl, can you convince Google to just do that? Like, yeah, exactly. Well, so that's one way to do it. Well, actually, you know, if you upload a video, um, yeah. to, to YouTube, it'll do automatic speech recognition. The internet archive is doing ASR as well. Um, and so that's not perfect, uh, but it's better than nothing. Uh, it's usually pretty damn good. It really is um be surprised so and then you can have like a wiki website you know for the popular shows where where the fan community can can go in and correct the the yeah you can do that although that that usually doesn't work but but at least in theory in theory it does um but we're so i i'm i'm not going to call this podcasting because it's not just audio and we're not doing rss and all that um i happen to still own multicasting.net and so we've decided we're going to call this multicasting um you know it's a new big thing um you know when did you buy multicasting.net Oh, I didn't buy it. I got it for free because they weren't selling domain names in those times. So <laughs> I, I, I pay for it now. I, I have to renew every year. But in, uh, uh, you know, I, I used to own TV.com and radio.com. And, uh, when we were running out of money, um, at the internet multicasting TV.com. service. 
I, I got a call from CNET and they said, would you be willing to like sell TV.com and radio.com? And I didn't have enough money to make payroll. I mean, we, we were, I was like, I was literally going to go bankrupt. And I said, you know, I'll sell them both to you if I have $30,000 in a check by tomorrow. And they FedEx me a check and I gave them the domain names. Um, and I was able to make my payroll. Wait, what so year I, was I that? I'm very pleased. Uh, 94. Okay, um, that's when yeah. TV.com and radio.com was worth 30 yeah. Now radio.com is uh, owned by Intercom. How much yeah. is it worth, Paul? Uh, I mean, you can't, how, who can put a price on radio.com? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm sure they did, right? So, you know, you could have made a lot of money speculating on domain names, but that was considered, like, bad taste. There was a guy in Pena, Illinois, which is a small town in central Illinois, uh, near the University of Illinois, where I was interned for quite some time, and uh, he registered the uh, domain PenaVision, which we might call PanaVision. And tried to extort <laughs> Panavision. Uh, he was a well-known character around Central Illinois. Um, he was unsuccessful uh, in, in trying to sell Panavision's domain back to them for uh, for a hefty price. That he but claimed. you know there 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 were speculators out there that bought you know porn dot com yeah. and stuff like that. The generic and ones just, are a lot easier to traffic them. in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, but again, uh, we, we considered that to be bad taste. You you registered the domain names that you were going to use. So you registered a few more than you were actually going to use. But 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 yeah, you you didn't. It, it was bad taste to be greedy. Um, that that wasn't the right thing to do. So, well, wonderful. Uh, any any more questions, Andrew? No, I I, I just I, I love how many of your stories, Carl, like from that period are are like uh, start with you saying, and we had to. The, it just shows your kind of humility, I think. Uh, and we had to put them online, like Lincoln Center and the Press Club. Like you didn't like to make what you were trying to do happen. You had to like put these huge organizations, like connect them to the internet for the first time. Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember. Uh, I, I've got it somewhere in my research. What what newspaper it was in. Um, but there was a newspaper article about um, what you were doing at the Network and Interop conference in 94 when you had that big radio for Manana. Like, uh, you know, oh, America, yeah. No, no. Up. That was that was live talk shows. We had a rock and roll band there, actually. Marty Lucas is a talented musician. We brought the full band out. Yeah. Uh, we, we did. We were Johnny Carson type shows and we, we had, you know, radio celebrities. And no, it was a lot yeah. of fun. And there was um, this there was this big there was this big article written about you in like the, it was like the Washington Post or something like that and it was it was and then there were a few paragraphs toward the end of the article it was mostly about you and what you were doing and then there were a few paragraphs about what else was happening at like Interop and it was like and there's this guy Tim Berners Lee who has this thing called the World Wide Web and that was <laughs> it like there was like nothing. <laughs> You know, and it was like what you were doing at that point was garnering, you know, more attention in, in, in at least in certain circles um, than uh, than than even something like what what Berners Lee was doing, and and you know, but I think it, it speaks to in, in my mind, uh, you know, one of the things that I I mean, I certainly like kind of argue in the book is just you know how much you were really working to sort of push the internet forward, like you were doing a lot of what you were working, a lot of what you were doing really was a public service, um, and I think. I think it's great that you use, and I think, you know, we talked about a bit here um, today, obviously, is, is that like radio um, is served as a great vehicle for you to be able to have a voice and, and make other voices heard. Again, like Geek of the Week was, you know, a lot of these engineers talking about, you know, what the internet was and how the internet works as a way of making it more broadly known. 
Um, and then, but you also had a sort of, you, you realize the value of entertainment too, right? You know, a lot of the programming that you did after Geek of the Week was, was you know, uh, music and opera and radio plays even and things um, that I think you, you, were, you astutely realized that to, to broaden the audience, you had to bring in kind of entertainment and just things that, that a wide variety of people would be interested in. It couldn't just be this niche of engineers and the like. Yeah, and, and part of it was just I, I you know I consider myself a public servant now, a public resource, and and I, I often say I'm a civil servant. I'm usually civil, but I'm always a servant. Um, but but I, I consider this public service, and I, I think it is important that people do public work. That you and and so putting the Lincoln Center online was because they wanted to go online and didn't know how to do it, and and we were there and we were able to help them out. Um, you know, same thing with these big government databases. It's it's like not only is it useful information for people it helps the government reinvent themselves and operate better it means that the the staff is happier i mean one of the reasons our our civil servants in washington have such an attitude is because the tools we give them to work with are so bad we spend 70 billion dollars a year on computers in the federal government and i have estimated i've testified before congress that half of that is wasted it's just it's thrown in the toilet. Um, and if we gave them better tools, they could do their mission better. They could serve the people better. Uh, everybody's happy then. And I, I think it's important that, that people understand that public work is important. One of the gratifying things about the Obama administration uh, was the number of times they went out to places like Google and they twisted people's arms and they said, come work for Washington. There's stuff you can do. And there's people like Jennifer Palka, who, who ran Code for America. She founded it, then went to the White House and was deputy chief technology officer. She helped start the U.S. Digital Service. Uh, Todd Park was chief technology officer of the United States. When healthcare.gov was just tanking, he went out and he grabbed three people from Silicon Valley, put them on an airplane, brought them out to Washington, and they spent the next three months fixing that service, which was like, it was bad. Um, but they were able to fix it. And it was such gratifying work for those people. And they've, most of them have spent the rest of their careers in public service. They haven't gone back to Google. They haven't started new startups. Um, they're, they're still trying to figure out how to make government work better. Cool. Uh, Carl Malamud, it's been uh, a great pleasure speaking with you and, and hearing about both uh, the work that you, that you did back in the early in the early nineties, as well as the work you're doing today and continue to do to, uh, help, you know, enhance, uh, public access to, to what should be public information. So, uh, folks can certainly learn more at uh, public.resource.org. Also, uh, professor Andrew Bottomley, thanks for joining us again for this, this wide ranging chat about, uh, this early history of internet radio. It, it's, it's always fantastic to have you on. Yeah. Well, no, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Eric and Paul, for inviting me. And Andrew, thank you so much for that book. You did a beautiful job documenting history. Um, that's uh, well worth a PhD. Um, and I really enjoyed the book. So thanks for writing that. Oh, thank you, Carl. That's, that's a real honor to hear that coming from you. 